Good morning. <clears throat> How's everybody doing? Good. The, uh, I think this is the last session at reInvent, yes? So uh, thanks for being here, home stretch. Who, who could use maybe two more days, three more days of reInvent? Anyone? Raise your hand. A couple of you. Well, thanks for coming to the very last session, the, I, the coveted speaking slot for any speaker that's uh, speaking this week. And uh, you're either here because you're really interested in S3 and Glacier, or uh, you're one of those that wants to get every little penny out of the uh, registration fee that you paid. So uh, let's get uh, some sessions done. So thanks for being with us this morning. My name is Craig Cotton. I'm the Director of Product Management for uh, Amazon S3. Uh, I don't work on Glacier directly, but it's within our team as well, so I'm uh, pretty familiar with that. And as you'll see here from a number of the announcements this week, we are doing more and more to integrate S3 and Glacier together so that Glacier just behaves like a really nice behaving storage class of S3. So you'll see some new things there. Uh, we'll recap a bunch of the announcements. Uh, did everybody catch the keynote from Andy Jassy? Most of you. Um, Andy spent, uh, it was pretty quick into the session, maybe 15 minutes in. He spent about 15 minutes talking about storage. Storage, uh, we think, is foundational for the applications that you folks are rolling out because once it's in the AWS platform, we now have more than 140 services that can make use of that storage that's stored in S3, EBS, EFS, Glacier, or any of the other storage products that we have. So we're gonna give you a blend of some of the fundamentals of S3 and a few best practices. We're gonna talk a lot about new announcements, uh, so maybe I'll go a little bit deeper into them than you saw in Andy's keynote. And then for those that haven't seen the, uh, the Werner Vogel's uh, keynote, um, Milan Thompson-Bukovec, our general manager, spoke uh, a little bit about the durability model of S3. So if you didn't get to catch uh, Werner's keynote, uh, that's on YouTube already, you can check that out maybe when you get back to the office next week. So with that, let's dive right in. And here is a quick agenda. We're gonna talk about uh, the storage classes to get you oriented properly. We'll move on to there uh, about bucket settings and some of the best practices when you're setting up uh, new buckets, whether it's your first bucket or your 5,000th bucket. Uh, we'll talk about how to scale your operations out with some new capabilities that we launched around S3 batch operations. Uh, we'll talk a bit about performance enhancements that we launched actually at the New York Summit back in July of this year that maybe you've missed, but we wanna recap that for you. Talk about some new data transfer options as well as you know, reorient you with the existing data transfer options that we have. And that should probably, I'll take maybe uh, 35 or 40 minutes, should leave us some time for questions if we have them when we're done. So a quick show of hands, does anybody use S3? That was a softball. I, I, I know almost everybody uses S3, so thank you for that. We're approaching our 13-year anniversary. S3 was launched Pi Day, so March 14th of 2006, and it was the very, fast, very first uh, AWS service. And some people say, wait a minute, I thought uh, uh, SQS was before S3. And it was, but SQS was launched before AWS was formalized as an entity, so um, I'm sticking with S3 as the first AWS service. And it's grown uh, quite tremendously. If you heard from Mylan, uh, she talked about uh, tens of trillions of objects, uh, talking about how on a, on, in a peak we can uh, transact uh, more than 60 terabits per second in a single AWS region. So there's a lot of throughput there, a lot of people using S3 for a lot of the reasons on this slide. Um, Mylan talked a lot about durability. There's nothing more critical to us than making sure when you entrust your data with us that we take that very seriously and that we're gonna protect your data properly. Um, we'll talk about some 
incremental security enhancements that we've been adding and we'll continue to invest to make sure that S3 and AWS and Glacier are the most secure platforms out there for your, your data. We'll talk about a number of manageability components here today, as well as the performance uh, improvements that we talked about a couple minutes ago. So let's start with storage classes. Uh, we try not to flood the market with storage classes and give you tons of them. It, it, we think it tends to complicate things, and people uh, would prefer us to keep the simple storage service uh, as simple as we can. But uh, we do need to continue to add and iterate on some new things. We're going to talk about some new storage classes, uh, or at least one that we're, we've launched this week that we're pretty excited about. Uh, but we will be pretty particular with how we release those, and instead we'll try to consolidate new capabilities into our existing products as best as we can. But uh, you can see what the uh, lineup looked like before this week, and then I'll, I'll give you a before and an after view. But uh, it goes from left to right of uh, S3 standard, which is what we launched initially back in 2006, and is still fundamentally the most popular storage class because it's got high performance, it's got all the high availability, uh, the costs are fixed, there aren't retrieval charges to navigate uh, or storage class analysis, we'll talk about that. Um, but there are ways to optimize your costs. And what we find from our customers is they tend to start in standard, and then as their storage footprint grows and grows and grows, at some point, uh, maybe somebody from the finance side says, hey, look at what we're spending on S3, so we appreciate that and thank you for that. But then they're looking to optimize their storage, and we've got a lot of tools uh, to do that, and we'll talk about those tools today. But you can lifecycle data along from standard to uh, SIA, or S3 standard and frequent access. In April of this year at the San Francisco summit, we introduced the one zone and frequent access storage class, uh, or sometimes called ZIA. Uh, and that is very similar to uh, S3 standard in frequent access, but instead of three availability zones, we store your data in one availability zone. So it's still highly durable stored in ZIA because we distribute your data identically as we distribute it across three availability zones, but we just do it uh, within a single AZ. So you're highly durable within a single AZ. If you go to our website and look up a ZIA, you'll see the asterisks there that, of course, your data is not protected from a data center uh, destruction event, right? The, that uh, fabled asteroid that uh, took out the dinosaurs or something like that. So uh, we generally say if you can't afford to lose your data, uh, then you probably want to be looking at replicating it across three AZs because we can't tolerate an AZ failure. Um, so think about that. It's, it's really ideal, though, for a lot of backup data or second copy data or data that you can uh, regenerate. Maybe you've got a big thumbnail library. We've got a lot of customers that use a lot of images stored in S3, and you can store your uh, thumbnails in one zone IA if you want to save a, a little bit on your storage. It's about 20% less than SIA. Uh, because you can regenerate those thumbnails, maybe over your originals that are stored in Glacier or stored in SIA or, or some other location. And then uh, S3 Glacier has been out for many years. And as I mentioned earlier, what customers have told us fundamentally, because there is a Glacier Direct API, and then I can get at Glacier through S3 by lifecycling data from S3 into Glacier. Got some new tools that we're excited about that I'll talk about today on more efficient ways to get data into Glacier. But increasingly, a customer said, hey, just make it easier for me to use Glacier as an S3 storage class. And we're uh, pretty far down the path with some of the announcements this week that we'll talk about. And then we've got a few other things planned for 2019 as well to continue to integrate Glacier into S3. So we're very excited about a new storage class that we launched this week, S3 Intelligent Tiering. And the reason we launched Intelligent Tiering, actually the reason we launched 100% of the capabilities I'm going to talk about uh, in the session today 
are customer requested features. So I think Andy or Peter DeSantis, somebody mentioned 95% of our features uh, come from direct customer asks. Uh, Esther and Glacier this, this week at reInvent, 100% things that you guys asked for. And what customers said was, hey, I, I understand that uh, I can get storage class analysis, and we'll cover that in a few minutes, and I can see where my colder prefixes are. I could use tags to lifecycle uh, data that I want to lifecycle. I can set up just rules for lifecycle based on the number of days when I want to send to a lower tier storage class. But many of you said, look, we're busy um, uh, processing the, the images if, if we're a media company or met with one of the online recruiters recently, and they want their engineers focused on building better online recruiting software. A lot of them don't want to spend the time to do the analysis of the storage class, even with the tools that we provide. And for a few years, customers have said, AWS, can't you just do this for me? So that's what we're so excited about with S3 Intelligent Tiering, is it automates cost savings for you, and it will automatically move your infrequent access data to the infrequent tier of S3 Intelligent Tiering. It does that automatically. It's going to wait 30 days to uh, gather your access patterns. After 30 days, it's going to start moving your infrequently uh, accessed objects or your cold objects. Uh, this is going to do this object by object. So the only way you can do this object by object today is using object tags. We'll cover that a bit in the lifecycle section. But normally, people will get storage class analysis, and they'll set up lifecycle rules based on an S3 prefix or based on a bucket. Uh, this we do at the individual object level. So after the first 30 days, uh, you'll start to see some of your storage move to the infrequent tier. And then uh, the nice part is if that data uh, heats up again or starts to be retrieved, we'll automatically move it back to you to the frequent access portion of it. While it's in the frequent access portion of uh, S3 Intelligent Tiering, you'll pay your S3 standard price. When it's in the infrequent access portion, you'll pay your uh, standard infrequent access or SIA price. Um, and then the other nice thing about intelligent tiering is the other thing that you told us was uh, sometimes we have a difficult time reasoning on retrieval fees out of IA, and some customers are concerned that their retrieval fees are going to you know, go a little haywire. Now, most customers that are using SIA, they've done the math, and you, know, you can afford to pay retrieval fees if you're saving 40% on your storage. Uh, you just don't want to pay too much and overpay for infrequent access. So we've removed retrieval fees from S3 Intelligent Tiering, so that's good news. Now, we did replace them with a monthly, uh, very small per object monitoring and tiering charge. The nice thing is you now have very predictable costs versus uh, some variation when you're using retrieval charges. And then depending on your workloads, uh, so if you'll notice with a monthly per object tiering fee, um, the larger your objects, they're going to pay the same fee as your smaller objects. So when you do your math, and it'll be a quick Excel or, or even literally the back of the napkin to figure out if this makes sense for you, what you're going to see is if your objects are in the megabyte range or larger, then the amount of the tiering fee, which is $2.50 per million objects, uh, will become rather negligible, negligible relative to the storage. And uh, what you'll find is if you have a lot of 128K, 256K objects, then the storage savings you'll get from intelligent tiering probably aren't going to be enough to cover uh, those smaller object sizes. So you'll have kind of a green, yellow, red, and uh, in the middle, uh, probably between about 300K and uh, you know, 500, 600K is um, uh, kind of the yellow zone where it will probably still make sense. Now, with intelligent tiering, 
Uh, we have a 30-day minimum because we're monitoring your data for 30 days to see what to do with it. And uh, just like SIA, we have, um, we, we, uh, I'm sorry, we don't have a, a minimum object size, but we are not going to tier any objects less than 128 kilobytes to infrequent tier. And if you think about how standard and SIA work, SIA has a 128K minimum object size, so it sort of follows uh, what we do with SIA today. Uh, but we will charge you for only the amount of storage. So there's no 128K minimum for the storage portion, but we just won't tier the objects less than 128K to the infrequent access portion, okay? So um, let's look at a, a couple of the key use cases, and I'm sure uh, you will find many more. But uh, we've met with a lot of customers this week talking about S3 data lakes. Uh, it was, anybody see, was it uh, Peter DeSantis' session with the, the Epic Games guy, the Fortnite? That was pretty cool, right, with Food Fight and all that. And so he's talking about their S3 data lake that they're using. So there's, uh, and Andy Jassy talked about now more than 10,000 data lakes running on S3. And often, the data in your data lake, some of it is gonna go super cold for months and months at a time, and then of course some of it you're gonna turn on uh, on a daily or an hourly basis. So we think intelligent tiering uh, is a good place for data lake storage. Also the objects in a data lake uh, tend to be larger parquet files or uh, larger objects uh, versus lots of 128 you know, KB objects. So data lakes we think makes a lot of sense. Talk to a lot of enterprises that have been saying I've been buying NAS and SAN storage on premise and racks and RAID 5 and 10 and all that kind of stuff that's in my past. Uh, I've forgotten a lot about that stuff. And uh, some of them aren't really as much in tune with their access patterns. And they've said, well, we're interested in closing our data centers over time and we're uh, a little unsure how to drive this uh, IA bus, although that cost savings uh, appears interesting to us. So uh, enterprise customers that don't have a lot of experience uh, yet in the cloud or anybody that doesn't know uh, their access patterns, or if you have a lot of data with changing access patterns, uh, kind of like the data lake example where things could be hot, then they could go cold. You just don't have to worry about it with intelligent tearing, and you're get the, gonna get the savings uh, either way. Okay, did uh, anybody see the Glacier Deep Archive announcement? A few of you. Um, so we felt that Glacier, uh, S3 Glacier, being a 3AZ, 11.9's durable service, at a public price of four-tenths of a cent was already a, a fairly compelling uh, offer, and the growth of uh, S3 Glacier has, has uh, borne that out. Um, but we talked to customers that said, you know what, I, I, I don't wanna delete my data. Uh, I'm gonna put it in Glacier, but is there anything else I could do? I, I don't need two to five minute expedited retrieval, which I can get out of Glacier. I don't even need three to five hour standard retrieval, which is the, the Glacier standard retrieval period. Uh, in fact, my options are, I, for a lot of people, I might just delete the data, and it, uh, a lot of, I've talked to a lot of people this week that have said, if I have the right price point, I'd really feel more comfortable not deleting anything, because who knows when you might need it. So these were some of the design points that had us really try to figure out what could we do for a new type of offer, and uh, Andy Jassy talked about this in the keynote on Wednesday, uh, S3 Glacier Deep Archive, at, uh, there's a lot of zeros and some nines, uh, but it's basically just under one-tenth of a cent per gigabyte per month, and that pencils out to a dollar per terabyte per month. Uh, there is no uh, cloud vendor offering lower-cost storage in the world, not to mention this is still 3AZ 11.9's durable storage for a dollar per terabyte per month. So it should be a very cost-effective way for you to archive uh, lots of your data or really all of your data. 
and we'll talk about some other ways that we'll be able to get data into uh, a deep archive in a few minutes. I'm gonna take questions at the end if that's okay, just jot it down. And then um, uh, the other uh, thing about um, uh, deep archive is um, uh, it's got a 12 hour standard retrieval. Uh, there at this point will be no expedited retrieval so if you do need expedited or three to five hour, that will still be uh, S3 Glacier. And then uh, we are planning a bulk retrieval that will be lower cost for retrievals in a 48 hour range. And uh, we've done some of the TCO analysis as best as we could. We think that this will be lower cost for you than your uh, off-premises tape storage if you're using some of those third party vendors to store tape offsite, which is fun, right? We all enjoy that. And uh, if you need your tapes back, as long as they don't come back all rotted out and you can't use them, it, it takes maybe five days or, or two weeks or something like that. So you'll have your data back in 12 hours and at a, uh, a cost the same or lower than you're getting for your, uh, your offsite tape today. So this is what the portfolio looks like uh, after this week with the additions of uh, S3 Intelligent Tearing and uh, S3 Glacier Deep Archive. I'll let you uh, get your photos all nice and taken. Oh, that encouraged people, so wow, I need to, I need to get one done. Okay, going, going, gone. Uh, these will be posted as well, of course. So uh, getting started with your S3 buckets. Um, couple things here, I'm not gonna go into details on provisioning S3, that's uh, different sessions, hopefully you were there uh, this week, but um, this is kind of your new bucket screen. You'll see some of the new things that we've added. This is where you can also set up versioning, we'll talk a bit about that in a few minutes. Uh, set up bucket tags. Uh, we'll talk about that. Uh, there are some new things that you'll find on here. I'll talk about them, of course, in this presentation. S3 object lock, which, which is a worm implementation. Write once, read many for S3. We'll go into that into detail in a few minutes. And we'll talk about the uh, S3 block public access, some new security capabilities that we launched uh, just about two weeks ago, uh, exactly two weeks ago. And we'd recommend that you turn those on on all of your buckets. S3, as a sort of a foundational service of AWS, uh, we are always gonna launch in every new region. And um, when we launch uh, new features like we did this week, uh, they are available in every single region around the globe. So those of you that are uh, outside of North America and sometimes see some of the services come to your regions a little bit slower, uh, S3 generally is gonna launch uh, the day that something new launches, we're gonna launch in every single region uh, just because that's what people want and expect from us. Um, bucket properties, uh, so here is where you could turn on some data protection with versioning, we'll talk about that. Uh, here is where you can have uh, bucket level tags for cost allocation tags, like a departmental tag uh, you would set from uh, the, the Create Bucket screen. Uh, this is where you can set things like default encryption on a bucket, so we highly encourage customers to turn that on. The way that works is any non-encrypted object coming into your bucket uh, will get encrypted via uh, SS a server-side encryption S3, so SSE S3 with S3 managed keys, or you can opt to have uh, unencrypted objects stored with uh, AWS KMS as well. And then if your objects do have an encryption header, we're just gonna respect or honor the encryption header that you've applied to it and not overwrite those, uh, override those with uh, default encryption. Uh, as I mentioned, object lock, we will talk about in a few minutes. And then here you can set up things like a CloudWatch a metrics right from your uh, create bucket screen. Uh, versioning is particularly uh, helpful if you're concerned about uh, either accidental or uh, maybe malicious overwrites of data. 
We've got some other tools for that as well with cross-region replication and now object lock. We'll cover both of those today as well. But um, versioning is uh, every time you write an object, instead of overwriting it, it's gonna create a new version with a version ID. The newest one is always gonna be the current version in your version stack. And uh, it's very helpful. You do, you do wanna be careful. Uh, the best practice is to write a lifecycle expiration policy when you're using versioning that maintains uh, how many versions you, you, you wanna maintain. Uh, we've had some customers that don't do that and all of a sudden they didn't realize um, some of them could have up to a million versions of a single object and their storage cost goes up and then they realize, and uh, the, so documentation will walk you through this, but you do wanna create a, a lifecycle policy that uh, arbitrates the number of, of versions. You do that uh, based on the number of days, I think it is. And um, let's see what I wanted to talk about here. Um, uh, you, you can also use this, you, you can request any version you want, but if you just request the standard S3 key name, it's gonna give you the current version. So just keep in mind, uh, your applications probably aren't uh, fundamentally configured to give you a different version ID, uh, but we do have some customers that have a requirement for that, where they will insert in the application the version ID if they do need to pull an older version. So I wanted you to, to be aware of that. Uh, bucket permissions, uh, we'll talk about um, uh, access control lists and S3 block public access uh, in particular. So on here you can see um, uh, what you shouldn't do, which is uh, make your buckets public, uh, unless you are using this for public distribution of data or hosting websites. And um, let's get right into uh, block public access. So uh, here with a few clicks, I can go into the management console. We've got uh, SDK and uh, API support for this as well. And there are fundamentally four new APIs that we do recommend if you don't need any public access that you go back immediately or maybe after this session, don't leave now, stick around, um, but, uh, and, and go set this. Uh, there are some caveats as well, so actually you probably wanna think about a little bit, but fundamentally, um, objects become public unintendedly, um, often because somebody put a public access control list on an object and they left your firm like nine months ago and nobody knows it's there and that was a dev bucket and it wasn't really important, but now you're starting to use, uh, or an object, uh, and now you're starting to use it more and all of a sudden you're um, hopefully not front page news uh, talking about these things. But, um, and it's, it's sometimes confusing for people based on IAM uh, roles and IAM policies for access for objects versus ACLs and AWS, why, why do you do that? Well remember, uh, uh, access control lists were very handy in 2006 when they were released to allow granular access before IAM existed. So that's why they're there. And um, we, we have a tendency to be bad at deprecating things because people sometimes get mad when you turn stuff off that they're using and relying on. So we, we tend to, more so than a lot of other vendors, keep stuff around uh, unless it's something like, if you're using SIG v2, please start using SIG v4. We're gonna shut that off uh, in June of next year. So there are some certain security things that we will deprecate. but. Um, so what you've got with S3 block public access, a couple things. One, you could do it at the account level or the bucket level. And the reason we've done both of those is our, our recommendation for best practices is if you do have a requirement for public uh, data distribution or public websites, our best practice recommendation is to put those in a separate account. And that's your, uh, that's your account where you're gonna have public access and you're gonna monitor that and, and watch it with the, the right amount of uh, rigor 
uh, to make sure that you're only putting your public data into that account. And then we'd like you to turn uh, block public access on, on all the rest of your accounts. The nice thing about that is any bucket then created in the future is gonna inherit that block public access because you've done it at the account level. That does require some of you to copy uh, some of your data to another account. We'll talk about batch operations that will help you do that. Um, but th that's really the best practice. Uh, if you can't do that, then you can turn this on. Uh, that's why we gave you the option of the bucket level settings for this at all to, as well, to be able to do this bucket by bucket. But uh, it's probably easier and safer at the account level, therefore blocking any new uh, accounts that you would um, uh, set down the road. So uh, remember account and bucket level. And then uh, the four settings, this is really pretty straightforward. Two of them are for access control lists and two of them are for policies. And the reason there's two is we decided to give you the option of setting this on all of your data moving forward or on all of your existing data as well. So if you just want everything blocked from public access, then you would set all four settings that you can see here on the, on the screen. Um, and that would be, uh, what we're gonna do is, uh, if you've got objects that have public uh, access control lists attached to them, uh, existing ones, and you turn on the block ACLs for existing objects, we're gonna ignore uh, those ACLs. Uh, if you uh, turn it on uh, for, uh, for new, and somebody writes a object, puts an object with a, a public ACL, we're gonna deny the put in the case of an ACL. And then the same things with policies. Uh, if you've got uh, uh, access policies that grant public access and you turn on uh, block public access against policies for existing data, we're gonna override and ignore those public policies. And then uh, same thing for, we're gonna deny policies that have public access statements moving forward for your new data, okay? Uh, what is public? Instead of us deciding, uh, we tapped right into the trusted advisor, the Zelkova tool, which defines public. So instead of recreating that, we just uh, piped into that. Uh, they do the uh, policy uh, verification. If they say that's a public policy, then uh, we're gonna apply uh, the block to it. So if those definitions uh, somehow change over time, we can pick those up as well. So excited about this. Uh, in one way, it doesn't provide anything new whatsoever. But in another way, um, on the other hand, it, it provides really just a very simple way with a few clicks uh, on the console to go and make sure that you've got your entire account with no public ACLs and no public policies. And, and the implication of that, uh, so the public policies we're gonna grant, uh, we're gonna block things like, um, like principal.star, broad access grants, uh, obviously any authenticated user uh, obviously everyone on the public internet and those things will get blocked. This is gonna force you to uh, grant access using explicit IAM uh, access policies, um, but that's really the best practice and the safest way to grant access to your data is to use explicit policies versus these broad policies. We give you a lot of flexible controls with S S3, so starting at the bottom, a lot of things you could do at the object level uh, Andy Jassy talked about this. We were in a meeting a few months ago uh, talking about some of the new things. He's like, can I do that at the object level? And can I do this at the object level? And our answer almost always was yes. And uh, uh, we, we focus on you more than the competitors, but Andy said, do our competitors offer, um, or other providers offer as much object level uh, granular access? And uh, we said no, and we went and did a quick evaluation of it. And uh, we had five to 10 times the number of capabilities at the object level and you might be able to do things at the prefix or the bucket level or the account level, and that's great, but we like the ability to give you this kind of access. 
Uh, you don't see at the organization level, but uh, we do meet with that team every other week, and we are uh, trying to figure out the most effective ways to let you set things that will uh, come down to S3 at the org level. And then some of the new uh, control tower, some of the new capabilities that were launched uh, this week will give you access at a broader uh, uh, or a high level to S3 resources as well. Um, anybody using object tags, a few of you? Yeah, I see some hands. Um, you can have up to 10 tags per object, and there's really a lot of interesting things you can do with object tags. Uh, and these um, are uh, metadata tags with key value pairs that you identify. Our new batch operations, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, will allow you to apply tags in bulk if you haven't gotten around to tagging, but you want to do that now, so that'll make it easier. Uh, one of the things that's really great about it is if you want granular access permissions to your data, you can tag your objects, and then you could, using IAM roles or IAM principal individual grants, you can grant individual access to individual objects based on object tags. So a lot of people don't realize that you've got that level of security flexibility using object tags, which is nice. Um, we also introduced back in September, maybe you missed this one, but we introduced cross-region replication based on object tags. So most customers that we talk to have important data, and then really important data, and then like critically important data, right? And then maybe have some unimportant data. But um, so before I could, um, uh, I could replicate uh, or cross-region replicate data to another AWS region based on S3 prefix or based on the bucket. And some customers just uh, say, I need to replicate all my data, and they just do it at the bucket level, and that's fine. But now your applications can tag your critical data, and you can replicate just your most critical data if you choose to. Or you could have a uh, S3 uh, one zone IA tag. You could have a Glacier tag, and then in 2019, you could have an S3 uh, Glacier Deep Archive tag, and you could use those tags to dictate uh, what objects you're gonna cross-region replicate to another AWS region as well. And we will talk a bit more on that. Um, I can also use it to lifecycle data based on tags, and a lot of the reporting and things like that that I do within uh, S3, I can filter some of the reporting based on object tags. So if you haven't used tags much, you might wanna take a look at that. And again, uh, we'll get into the S3 batch operations that will allow you to tag uh, millions or even billions of objects if you would like to. So as excited as we are about intelligent tiering, um, if you know that your data is cold and that it's not likely to be accessed, then you should probably just put it in SIA because your storage cost is the same as intelligent tiering, but you don't have this small per object fee, right? So we, we're really excited about intelligent tiering. Um, and we think it's gonna save a lot of customers a lot of money, uh, but just keep that in mind. If you know your data is not gonna be accessed, then why not pay the infrequent access price without the monthly monitoring fee? Um, and to do that, we give you some tools. Storage class analysis helps you optimize your costs. Uh, it will run on the, in the background, uh, looking at all of your objects, your prefixes, your buckets, and um, it's gonna give you these age groups that identify the access patterns of your data based on tags, prefixes, or buckets. Um, and it's gonna give you recommendations, as you can see here on the bottom right, of you should uh, set a lifecycle policy 
that life cycles this prefix after 45 days and this one after 60 days. And that's gonna help you optimize your cost by getting into infrequent access uh, storage savings at, a, again, about a 40% savings. Um, here are some examples of lifecycle to tier. So I could do uh, very basic policies uh, based on age, and I can send something from standard to SIA to uh, Glacier. Uh, customers have been doing this for several years, a fairly common kind of a pattern that we see. Uh, but here's some other patterns that you might see. Uh, so for example, after 60 days, you could go to SIA. And you could do this, by the way, obviously without uh, storage class analysis, but storage class analysis will arm you with the metrics that will give you some conviction around the, the right amount of days for these things. Uh, and then you can send it after 180 days to Glacier. Or uh, we think a common pattern for a lot of new customers will be, I don't know my access patterns, I'm just gonna use S3 intelligent tiering. And then within S3 intelligent tiering, it supports the full cross-region replication and it supports uh, lifecycle policies and pretty much everything that any other storage class supports. So I could then uh, do a lifecycle of intelligent tiering after X number of days, in this example, 180 days to, to Glacier or to uh, Glacier Deep Archives starting in 2019. And then uh, just one more example here. Uh, oh, we did pick up the, uh, the Deep Archives. So you could even say, um, you know, after a certain amount of time, go from Glacier to Glacier Deep Archive. As I mentioned, customers want to use S3 Glacier as just another storage class. So we've got uh, four exciting new capabilities. Uh, the first one starts with putting data into S3 Glacier. Uh, up until this week, I had to put it into S3, and then I had to write a lifecycle policy. I could have created like a zero-day lifecycle policy to get it to Glacier. But now when you go to put data into the S3 API and you select your storage class, you'll find Glacier as a supported storage class for a direct put to Glacier. So that will make it easy, especially for your applications where you want to automate this, um, where you can uh, get those directly in there. This also enables uh, an interesting capability, which is a cross-region replication direct to Glacier. And again, this is a very common design pattern where I'm using standard or hopefully uh, intelligent tiering will make sense for a lot of customers. And then I do want to get a copy to another region on the other side of the country or in a different part of the continent. And I can now do a cross-region replication that will replicate it directly to uh, S3 Glacier in my secondary region. Prior to this, uh, again, I had to send it to S3 and then do a lifecycle policy to, to get it uh, over there. So this will streamline that. Um, we've also introduced restore notifications. So we did not have Glacier restore notifications to S3. So you, you had to pull if you had a three to five year standard, three to five year, that would be really bad, a three to five hour uh, standard retrieval, um, then you'd have to pull, you know, three hours, three hours, 10 minutes is my object back. Uh, so we now have, and I think there's a screen on this uh, later on, but um, we now have uh, restore notifications. You could set up an SNS uh, that could trigger a Lambda function that would maybe transcribe the, the data that you're uh, retrieving back from, or restoring back from Glacier. And you could just kind of work this into the automated workflow with the restore notifications. And then the last one is a restore speed upgrade. So we talked to a lot of customers, especially a lot of the media companies and um, uh, del media delivery companies are archiving uh, uh, petabytes and petabytes of media files. And for cost savings, they like to use bulk retrievals out of Glacier and they wanna program their applications to retrieve via bulk. Um, but then uh, maybe somebody from HR comes by and says, hey, I, I need this data and, and can I have it in an hour? 
and um, there was no way to promote or upgrade uh, a retrieval in process. Uh, so that might have prevented a lot of people from programmatically making bulk retrieval the standard. Um, but now you can do that, and then you can just fire off a new API or go into the console, and you can say, I want to upgrade this from bulk to standard or from bulk to expedited, or I can uh, upgrade from standard to expedited as well if I need it in minutes instead of hours. So direct put to Glacier, very handy. Uh, Cross-region replicate to another region directly to Glacier without having to do a lifecycle policy from S3. The restore speed, I'm sorry, the restore notifications to let you know exactly when your objects are back into S3 and uh, really be thinking about kicking off automated processes for what you want to do next with that object using um, uh, maybe Lambda functions to, to take action on the objects. And then the restore speed upgrade to allow you to programmatically uh, restore data at the, the most cost-effective tier for your business based on your needs and give you the ability to upgrade it if your default is not expedited, which is not very common. Okay, object lock. Um, anybody have compliant storage requirements? A couple of hands, oh, a lot of hands. So uh, maybe you're in the financial services space, maybe you're in the healthcare space with medical records or images um, or something like that, or um, this is for the rest of you, you should pay attention too, because this is just another way to prevent or uh, give you another tool to use against accidental or malicious deletion of data. And um, uh, going back to my NetApp and EMC days, we called this worm, uh, write once, read many. Uh, for those in the financial services space, uh, you could see here it's uh, Security and Exchange Commission 17A4. There's a whole standard around here, uh, around this. We have achieved the, uh, in the financial services space, the Cohasset letter of attestation, which we could provide to you because your auditors are going to say, hey, prove to me that this storage is compliant. And um, uh, let's see. Uh, we also added uh, legal hold support. So the fundamental concept here is you write an object, and with it, you supply a retention date. And um, the retention date is uh, the date at which, until we reach that date, uh, we cannot delete an object or mutate an object. It becomes immutable at that point. And uh, we can do this at the object level, or we can do this at the bucket level, back to the object level operations, because some of the other providers launched the similar capability this year, and they all did this at the bucket level, which is great. We can do it at the bucket level as well. You could have a one-year bucket, a two-year bucket, a five-year bucket, and then all objects that you put into that bucket will inherit that policy. But we talked to a lot of customers who say, we want our application to just write an object and put a specific retention date, and I don't want to have to worry about getting it into the right bucket or the wrong bucket, and I put a five-year policy on a one-year uh, object, which could be unfortunate in compliance mode. But uh, why don't we talk a bit about the different modes? So uh, the other thing that we've given you is a compliance mode and a governance mode. So the compliance mode is compliant storage. If you set a five-year date and uh, you realize, geez, I didn't really need to set that date, I want to um, move that date to three years, or I want to delete that object, can't do it. For that reason, when you t so if somebody puts a compliant retention date on an object and puts it into one of your buckets that does not have object lock turned on, uh, it's, it's not going to work. You have to turn object lock on on your bucket as uh, one safety mechanism. The second one is when you turn it on, uh, we're gonna default it to governance mode. And governance mode allows, you're gonna designate uh, certain users 
that are like privileged elites, like secure, uh, uh, like uh, ops admins or something like that. So your users can't delete the data um, accidentally or maliciously, uh, but you still have a mechanism to delete the data or to remove a retention date or to change a retention date if you want to change it. Okay, so think about that. Uh, probably the best practice is to not use compliance mode unless you have an actual compliant storage requirement because using the governance mode will give you uh, an out and a way to override uh, via uh, somewhat of a privileged delete. And then uh, this is what this might look like for you. So you can see uh, on the bottom there representing a, a, a put of an object that says retain until time equals 10. And then somewhere along the way, so you might have an object where time equals 10 um, is, let's say that's just years, so 10 years. And then something happens where there's uh, some kind of a, uh, a patent suit or something like that, or, or something that requires you to not delete that object until you have resolution of the event. So we've added legal holds. Uh, I do not have to have a retention date to put a legal hold on an object, and um, I don't have to have a legal situation to put a legal hold on an object. That's just the name of the feature, but it's handy as a way for you to flip a bit for any object that you just don't want deleted until somebody flips that bit back. Right? And uh, no charges um, uh, for any of this object lock. These are all uh, free features. And um, so even if I reach, in this example, uh, the end of retention date, if that object still has a legal hold on it, it's still going to remain immutable until I lift that legal hold. And again, I, I don't need the, uh, the retention date to combine it uh, or to use it with legal hold. I could use it separately. Okay, let's get into CRR a little bit, give you a few nuggets there and talk about some of the best practices. So uh, cross-region replication automatically replicates your data to another AWS region. We have um, lots of customers using this. Uh, we're, we're, we're pretty proud of the capability that we offer. And um, some of the things that we think we provide more flexibility to you is, first of all, you can replicate at the bucket, the prefix, or now at the object level with the object level tagging. Uh, you could do this from any region to any region. So uh, there are other providers that have multi-region uh, kind of storage classes. Uh, please watch Peter DeSantis's uh, pitch if you weren't there the other night, because our uh, AZs and regions, we believe, are quite different than um, some of the other providers out there. But uh, we think customers want choice. You want, you know, do you want to go from US East uh, 1 to US West 2? Do you want to go from uh, Dublin uh, to Bombay? Um, so we, we give you that choice of any region to any region, as well as any storage class to any storage class. So customers sometimes say, well, why don't you have a multi-region product like some of the other uh, folks out there? And um, it's certainly something we're considering because uh, customers are asking for it. But my response is, well, do you want standard to standard? Um, do you want standard to one zone IA? Do you want intelligent tiering to Glacier? The combinations that we could offer and the flexibility that we can offer is, uh, is hard to replicate in a very simplistic kind of a multi-regional offer. So we, we like that flexibility, and most of our builders uh, have told us that they like that flexibility as well. Um, and the, the new next to the to any storage class, uh, in case you didn't pick it up, that's because we can now do it directly to Glacier without having to go through S3 first. Um, and then I can do this uh, across accounts. So we introduced this about a year ago where I can do a cross-region replication with ownership override. Uh, 
So as I'm replicating it, I could change the owner of the object. And again, it's uh, just another mechanism to help prevent against uh, accidental or that one's probably more malicious uh, deletions of data. So here is kind of some examples of maybe you want to go from uh, US East uh, 2 in Ohio to uh, Mumbai uh, in India. And uh, again, any storage class to any storage class. Uh, so I could do standard to SIA. I can go from uh, S3 Intelligent Tiering now directly to S3 Glacier. So hopefully you're, you're getting the point that we're giving you kind of the ultimate flexibility that you need to replicate your data. And again, if it makes sense for you to replicate all of your data, that's great. Um, but if you're not replicating data today, I would encourage you highly to start tagging your most critical assets and replicating your most critical data. You might be very comfortable, I hope you're very comfortable with our 3AZ and our regional architecture and our AZ separated by miles and on separate floodplains and power grids and, and all of that is what we all love about S3 and Glacier, but uh, it's also best practice for your most critical data to put it into another region, and we're giving you more granular and simpler ways to do that. Managing data, so uh, S3 inventory, a relatively low-cost way to get a daily or a weekly report in uh, CSV, in um, uh, ORC, and then um, uh, if anybody needs Parquet, uh, maybe that's coming very soon too. I guess I shouldn't pronounce things, but um, of uh, all of your data, and you could select which pieces of the metadata do you want. You go right into the console, and today there's, uh, well, as of last week, there were seven pieces of data in addition to the main object data, which gives you your version IDs and e-tags and things like that. And now we've got the retention dates uh, added is the new part of that there. And this will uh, help you uh, be compliant if you want to see uh, what... Um, which of your objects are encrypted for uh, proving compliance for encryption and things like that. And we will continue uh, in 2019, 2020 to add more capabilities to the uh, S3 inventory report for you to see other aspects of your S3 objects in there as well. Customers uh, have been telling us for a couple of years, hey, your APIs are great and we love, we love them, um, but when we need to do things across thousands, millions, billions, and we do have customers that have trillions of objects as well. Uh, it, it's more difficult to do things across you know, billions or trillions, or, or based on your size, maybe even thousands or millions of objects. Uh, a lot of customers have scripted applications to do this, and um, that takes resources away. It, it's not necessarily highly strategic to your business to be scripting those things, and they just one of these things said, hey, uh, uh, AWS, can't you do this for us? So we're excited to announce uh, S3 batch operations. Uh, this is in preview, so you will need to fill out a form on the website. I promise you it will take you less than two minutes. I promise. Um, and then you'll submit it, and you'll need to wait probably, uh, it won't be three to five hours, might be three to five days or something in that range. Uh, and then we'll get, uh, you'll let us know what region and your account numbers will get you whitelisted for this. It'll probably be a relatively short preview. We do think that this will generally go generally available in uh, probably an early Q1 of 2019. And it allows you to perform API actions across thousands, millions, or billions of objects. And you'll choose your object, you'll select the operation. The thing we've done is surrounded S3 batch operations with a lot of reporting. And this was the one thing that when customers, and, and probably some of you in this room, have scripted some of these things to do things in bulk, but you probably didn't do prioritization of your jobs. You probably didn't do status updates uh, via the APIs or through the console that you could query. Um, 
and you might not have invested the resources to do completion reports, including the, the jobs that, uh, or the objects that completed successfully and the ones that didn't complete successfully. Uh, said another way, we've, we've built a complete service here around this uh, that will make it uh, pretty easy for you to use. And so the way it'll work is you'll choose your objects. So you could curate your own list that you send to us. Uh, we think most people will probably use an S3 inventory report on a, a prefix or a bucket. That'll be a, a CSV file that you can edit. Uh, so you don't have to take, for example, action through batch operations on every object in that prefix, but that could be your starting CSV file, and then you could go uh, edit that as you choose. And then uh, you'll select an operation, and um, there's a couple, uh, two different sort of flavors for here. So uh, most of these are very traditional things I do with my objects in S3, like copy, uh, restore from Glacier, um, put uh, or, or delete uh, access control lists on objects, uh, replace tag sets. So those are pretty traditional S3 and Glacier kind of things. Uh, but running Lambda functions in bulk is not a traditional storage operation. But Lambda functions generally are one at a time as well. So with S3 batch operations, you can send us a CSV file that says, uh, I wanna uh, transcribe uh, these million objects uh, through Lambda, or I want to um, copy my objects and um, encrypt them uh, using Lambda uh, across uh, you know, a million objects as well. So those are the two types of functions. And this is just the beginning of the operations. What we really invested a lot in was building a scalable service. It has to be scalable to, to do this at S3 size with uh, some of the, the counts of objects that uh, some of you in the, in the room here have. And uh, we, so we built the foundational service. That took us a, about a year. Uh, and then to add the functions of new APIs is uh, much faster than that. So you will see a number of new APIs come out uh, in 2019 for other functions that we can do with batch operations. And as I mentioned, we've got uh, progress level uh, APIs or status reports, uh, notifications, completion reports, and things like that for you. Okay, so if you're interested, you'll fill out the form, uh, take you two minutes or less, and uh, we'll get you whitelisted, and uh, you can start using this. I, I will caution one thing. Um, if, if some of you are gonna try this across a billion objects, just make sure before you hit the submit button that that's what you wanna do across a billion objects. Um, and also, I, I guess I'll, I should mention, the, the, uh, the operations that you do, the request costs for copy uh, and these things are, are just as they were before. Uh, to use this in preview, uh, there will be no charge for the batch operations. When we launch it, it will be something like uh, 25 cents to run a job and then uh, some amount per million objects. Um, and if you do 1,000, it's prorated. So it'll be pretty cost effective to, uh, to run this. And we did map this against customers. We talked to about five customers that were doing this themselves and we said, tell us how much you're doing it. We wanna make sure that we could build a service that's uh, ideally the same price or lower than what you're spending to do this yourself. So um, really didn't price this as a, a big profit center item, more to kind of cover our costs. So the reason to use it, save time, um, simple and fully managed, giving you all the reporting that you need around this, especially if you're gonna do something across thousands, millions, billions of objects. When you get done, you wanna know the you know, zero point uh, you know, 2% of objects that for some reason didn't complete with this. 
and you'll get some uh, response as to why, and then you could resubmit those and try that again. So that will be handy for you as well. On the performance side, um, in July, we rolled out some new capabilities around the globe to increase the fundamental uh, request rate performance. Most customers don't run up against these limits, but some of our big data customers, some of our larger customers, uh, were seeing some of the limits. Uh, way back when, the documentation talked about 100 uh, puts and 300 gets. So you can see we're significantly um, higher performance than that now at 3,500 and 5,500. Um, but the most important part of this is this is per partition. This is not per bucket. So if you have one partition in your bucket, you're going to get 5,500 gets. Um, if you have 10 partitions in your bucket, you can get 55,000 gets per bucket. So it is part per partition. I'll talk about that uh, a little bit more. And for those of you that are, have wrestled with um, a key naming, uh, we think almost everybody in the room, maybe everybody in the room, shouldn't have to worry about uh, hashing or randomizing your key names anymore because of the performance improvements, number one. And number two, uh, sort of uh, behind the scenes, we've automated a splitting of your uh, key names into, not into new prefixes, something we call partitions uh, underneath S3. We don't expose those publicly, and I'll, I'll talk about how that works. But um, fundamentally, uh, almost all of you should not have to really worry anymore about your, your key naming and randomizing and hashing. And people asked us for that because it, uh, it introduces a lot of complexity uh, for a lot of customers. So um, uh, no more 32-bit Java random uh, you know, generators and things like that um, are generally required. So the way it works, if you can see here, <clears throat> you can see that my, my bucket and log files and log errors and then dot, dot, dot. Um, so in, in this case, uh, the, the AWS bucket is going to have 5,500 uh, gets and 3,500 puts. And uh, by the way, that's, you don't uh, get both of those in parallel. You get uh, the combination of those. So uh, if it's 50-50 get to put ratio, then you could divide those each in half, and you'll see what you get. But um, uh, what we then do is we can automatically partition on uh, log. Uh, here you can see log files and log errors versus whatever comes after dot, dot, dot. And then uh, you'll get 3,500 and 5,500 on each. And then um, we don't need, in S3, the, uh, the, the hashes. Um, so we can further partition on files versus errors, right? So don't worry about going crazy with slashes, because a slash to us is just another Latin character. Um, so don't, don't worry about that. We'll, we'll, we'll go partition. Now, the way this works, by the way, is unfortunately this isn't instantaneous. Uh, we want to make sure that if we're seeing increased requests, that it's not just a, 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 a simple little spike. Because if we did that across everybody's buckets and instantaneously repartitioned, uh, it would take away a lot of the performance benefits that we all love around S3. So what we do is we monitor the traffic, and we're automatically, in this case, going from log to files and errors. It's about a 30 to 60 minute process. Uh, but if that's sustained, increased, uh, requests on your part, uh, you don't have to do anything. We're going to do that automatically. Uh, you might see some 500 uh, errors while we're doing that, and um, 
uh, seeing that increased traffic, but then we're gonna automatically partition uh, as we do there, and again, we don't need the slashes. Now, if you're uh, Epic Games, if you're in the crowd, hopefully, and uh, you're launching a new mode on Fortnite, you, you don't have to wait the 30 to 60 minutes. If you know of an event that's gonna create a step function increase in requests, uh, just open a trouble ticket or through your solution architect or something like that, and then we can do some manual pre-partitioning on your behalf. Uh, we're happy to do that uh, if you know of some event of a new product launch or something like that where you're gonna expect to see these. We can get these set up in the background so that we don't have to spend that 30 to 60 minutes learning. But um, uh, yeah, let me move on. Uh, S3 Select, I think, is our last topic, and we are running out of time, a few minutes left. But uh, we launched this in preview a year ago, and at GA in the April uh, summit on April 4th of this year. And this is a way to get a portion of your object uh, without having to retrieve the entire object. And this is generally used, but doesn't have to be, um, along with some kind of a big data analytics workflows. And what we're seeing with it is if I only have to pull a portion of the object without retrieving the whole object, we're seeing some of the analytics workflows uh, complete. We've seen some as much as 500% faster. And in many cases, this can save you costs as well. And the example, and let me um, move on to show you some of the new capabilities. So we launched this with uh, delimited file, uh, CSV, TSV support, JSON, objects, and uh, everybody said, hey, we need Parquet. And everybody said, gzip is great, but we also need bzip too. And everybody said, JSON is great, but you haven't given us uh, the JSON array expression support. So we added all of those in July. Um, and then um, you all said, well, this is great, but I really need Hive, Spark, and uh, Presto support. So those were recently added to 5.18 of EMR recently. Um, and now, if you're storing, let's say, Parquet files to do your analytics, and you've got, uh, I don't know, 5,000 columns, and you need to do some work on five of the columns without S3 select, so using get to get that Parquet file out of uh, S3, uh, take it into EMR, grab the columns you need, uh, you're using compute instances to do that. Uh, that's costing you some money. So now, instead of using get, you can uh, use select, and you'll use um, predicate pushdown like SQL commands to say these are the columns that I need. Uh, you will pay for S3 select. There's a small feed of uh, the total object size per gigabyte to process, and then uh, we charge an even smaller fee for data returned. Our modeling was based on, we wanted to price it so that the amount that you pay for S3 select is probably not 100% of the time, but most of the time is less than the compute resources that you would be paying for to grab those five columns out of that Parquet file yourself. So you'll want to do some testing of this if you haven't. Uh, to run a, an S3 select query, you could do for you know pennies uh, to try it out. Um, but it should be cost effective. In many cases, it'll save you quite a bit of money. And in many cases, it will accelerate your analytics performance as, uh, like I said, we've seen as much as uh, 400, 500%. It's also interesting against uh, IA data and frequent access data. So the, the data return charge for S3 select for your standard and frequent access is still one cent uh, per gigabyte, the same as your IA retrieval. Uh, the difference is if you're retrieving 10% of your IA object, 
then you're paying uh, you know, a tenth of a cent versus the full cent. So that's a cost-effective way. And then uh, objects in standard have a much, much smaller um, uh, data return charge for S3 Select as well. And then uh, try this out if you haven't already. And then just keep feeding us um, uh, you know, what, else, what else do you need. Uh, we are uh, working with uh, the Athena and Retro Spectrum team. We have not yet gotten this fully plumbed in through those tools. Uh, hopefully that will happen in 2019. And when that does, you won't do anything. They'll just make use of that um, on your behalf to uh, speed up your queries. And then uh, quickly on data transfer, and Andy covered a, a number of these in his keynote, so hopefully you picked them up. And since I'm at 0.00, I'm gonna go very quickly through this. Um, let's just talk about the new things. So um, is building S SFTP servers and proxy servers, raise your hand if that's strategic for your company. <laughs> Anybody? Um, it, it's a, it's a, a pain in the neck, right? So. Customers have been saying, give us easier ways to get data into S3. So here is the new managed uh, transfer service, SFTP. Works with all of the, the intention was you don't have to change any of your client applications or your processes. Uh, you keep using those. You'll configure uh, a, a managed SFTP server in the network, and uh, you're on your way. So take a look at that if you didn't see it. And then the last one, uh, if anybody is using Signiant or Aspera or any of these acceleration services, uh, customers just said, hey, can I get a native one from AWS? And if it's a fraction of the price of those commercial ones, those other ones, that would be nice as well. So we like to, uh, to, to give you guys what you asked for. You'll see up to 10 times performance uh, with uh, this new uh, AWS DataSync uh, transfer acceleration product. And uh, again, fully managed, uh, fully integrated with your workflows. And I am um, gonna stay up here in the front for questions, but uh, since the, uh, the session time is over, I am uh, not gonna take them in the general session. So thanks for coming to reInvent this year. Thanks for sticking around till the last session on Friday.